Hi everyone, before we get into the podcast, we just wanted to give a brief trigger warning. Some of the content in this episode pertains to sexual abuse, forced sterilization, racism against Latina women, and a general disregard for women's inherent human rights. Hey guys, my name is Annie, and I'm one of Flo's podcast co-directors this year. I am a sophomore majoring in international relations and environmental science, and um, yeah, I'm really excited to be here. I'm Lauren. I'm uh, Flo's other podcast co-director this year. I'm a sophomore. I go by any pronouns. My major is narrative studies, which is just writing, and yeah, welcome to Flo's first episode of the semester. So we're kicking it off this year by bringing up by bringing Flo's founder and former president, Natalie Perez, back onto the podcast to talk about a research project she completed last semester regarding the federal class action lawsuit, Madrigal versus Quilligan. So a little bit about Natalia, just to give her an introduction. Um, so Natalia major, double majored in NGOs and social change and also international relations while she was at USC. And we also wanna give a big shout out to her because she's currently in Mexico on the US Fulbright program which is a very big deal and she's a very big deal and we feel very excited to have her on the podcast and just be talking to her today. Um, so she's going to give us a full rundown on the case, but Magical versus Quilligan was a case filed against the Los Angeles County USC Medical Center by 10 Mexican-American women who were systematically coerced into having sterilization procedures. Um, an important part of an important element of intersectional feminisms, and one of the things we try to do in Flow is to draw attention to the ways that people's various intersecting identities affect our experiences with the world. Rather than simply focusing on women's issues, we try to understand the complicated and interwoven relationships between sex, gender identity, sexuality, race, economic standing, and culture. This case clarifies some of the struggles that non-white and non-English speaking women experience in the United States. During the 20th century, racism and the eugenics movement led to an extensive and widespread history of forced sterilization of women of color. And we're talking about Madrigal versus Cooligan today, not just because it's an important issue regarding reproductive rights and discrimination that specifically affects women of color, but also because USC was a key player in the case. And Lauren and I just wanted to bring Natalia onto the podcast and talk about Madrigal versus Quilligan because we think that it's really important for us as USC students to make sure that we aren't leaving this problematic element of USC's history in the past, and also to just kind of consider how um, USC's role in the case may be representative or important to some of the issues happening at USC on, on campus and also throughout the world today. So on that note, we would like to invite Natalia onto the podcast and to introduce herself and tell us a little bit about Madrigal versus Quilligan. Thank you guys, love the introduction. Um, yeah, hi everyone, I'm Natalia and I'm really excited to be back on the Flow podcast. I obviously loved Flow during my time at USC, so I'm happy to kind of continue the conversations that are going on, not only in USC's history, but how it relates to today. So on that note, yeah, I can give a little bit more background. Um, so in the 1960s, there was widespread sterilizations of Latina women, Chicana women, um, both documented and undocumented um, in Los Angeles County, uh, USC Medical Hospital. And in the 70s, when we started seeing this um, more legal action being taken, uh, a key player was the Los Angeles Center for Law and Justice. Um, they're a key organization that to this day is still fighting uh, on behalf of women against sexual violence um, and are a great organization that I highly recommend looking more into. But they kind of led this class action lawsuit and it was honestly very hard at first to even get women to want to speak about this. Not only is this like a super sensitive issue, but also has a lot of um, emotions charged to, you know, 
how women's lives were changed forever. And then having to relive that trauma in a lawsuit is very complicated to not only um, share the story with a lawyer, but then to share the story in a, a law room with a bunch of other white people who probably don't understand what's going or don't understand you are racist and classist and all the isms. Um, but yeah, eventually women who are incredibly strong um, told their story. And while unfortunately the law, the judge actually ruled against them in this case, um, there were some long-term benefits to ensure that, you know, these documentations in the hospitals were not only in the native language of um, the mother, but also um, so they were given a translator and other resources to make sure that, you know, that consent was informed and voluntary and not just something that happened while, you know, a woman was already given um, an epidural or while she was under already, uh, where obviously consent cannot be freely given. Um, so yeah, that's a little bit about the case and I'm sure we'll get into more of the details uh, with Annie and Lauren. Thank you so much. Yeah, that's a really good overview. Definitely like, I don't know, kind of a horrifying case to think about, but also just like, I didn't know that much about like the eugenics movement until I talked to you last year. So when you told me about the case and told me that USC was involved in it and that like, um, this was kind of a widespread thing happening all across the country, that was a little bit horrifying. So I think it's awesome that we're talking about this case today. And, um, yeah, trying to understand our role in it and its significance. So on that note, what are some of the broader issues that you think this case draws attention to? And by broader issues, I mean like white feminism, racist ideologies in healthcare, uh, negative stereotypes regarding Latina women and other things like that. Like, what do you think is important? What do you think we should take from the case? Yeah, a hundred percent. I think a crucial thing was defining like what is consent, what is informed and voluntary consent. A lot of what was happening with these women is they would wait till they were um, already on the epidural. So completely almost like incapacitated to be able to answer these questions, Ask, asking them in English um, or having the form just handed to them. And I remember in one of the cases of the women, it was like, please, like the woman was begging, please just like make the pain go away, make the pain go away. And the doctors kind of alluded, you signed this, the pain will go away. And that was the signature to allow the sterilization, which she obviously had no idea she was signing to. Uh, they'd also wait till the husband was not around to so someone who was, you know, sober and able to like make decisions um, to inform his wife of what was going on or girlfriend or partner. Um, another huge theme was this is happening at the same time as like Roe v. Wade is actually being passed in the 1970s. So it's really interesting to kind of see the dynamic interests that are within, you know, all of women. And that's like kind of how you mentioned earlier, why it's so important to focus on the intersectionality of it, because 100% women should have the right to choose. Um, but obviously in other cultures, being a mother, having kids is a, has you know, a way different form of significance in um, that area, especially, specifically with Mexican-American culture. Um, and a lot of these women are immigrants. So they're you know, maybe fully identifying as Mexican or um, yeah. So kind of seeing like a woman's choice and being able to, you know, the almost opposite of Roe v. Wade, like not just focusing on abortion, but like also having the right to have children on your own terms and not um, on the basis of some racist ideology. And kind of on that note, what we've seen in documentaries like No Mas Bebes and, you know, going through the court cases, you can see the term, the language the doctors were using towards these patients was just flat out racism. Um, I remember one doctor mentioning like, you know, 
this baby's going to ca- cost the U.S. tax dollars like so much more and like seeing Mexican-American children as a burden to the U.S. Uh, tax system was also a pretty problematic viewpoint from your doctor who's there to take care of you and ensure that you're supposed to have a healthy child. Again, with the informed and voluntary consent, women were already being put under anesthesia when being asked if they had their consent to be sterilized. Like, so totally disregard for their autonomy over their own body. Um, And kind of this doctor taking literally life into their own hands um, and being kind of portrayed as God. Yeah. I also, one thing that I remember reading about when I was looking at the case was I think it said that a lot of women like who were involved in the case, like a lot of them went to the hospital because they needed like emergency C-sections. And so like, mm-hmm. if you're, if you're in like a frame of mind or like, like it, not even a frame of mind, like if, if you're going to a hospital to get an emergency C-section, like you're not really thinking about anything. Like if, yeah. if a doctor is speaking to you in a different language and you're on drugs and like, you know, like there's so many emotions and like different things going on. How are you supposed to be cognizant of the fact that like this doctor is asking you, like, if you want to have your tubes. Well, and a huge thing is kind of around me when you're saying like emergency C-section, these weren't all emergency C-sections. They were turned into like C-sections because it's honestly easier to tie someone's tubes during that procedure. So they were like women who were like just coming in to get like checked in. Coming in. Yeah. yeah. And or they're coming in to have their child the norm, like, you know, old fashioned way of vaginal birth. And this was a lot. C-sections were usually the doctor's idea because it's easier to perform uh, that procedure through that. And yeah, huge thing that you brought up tying tubes. So obviously we are native English speakers. We know what that means. Um, if you watch a doctor show in the US, you probably know what that means. That essentially that means you're being sterilized and will be able to not have children. Tying tubes doesn't translate to Spanish very well, or that's not like a very normal term. So when women are being told, oh, like, can I, we're going to tie your tubes in their mind. If you can tie my tubes, you can untie them. So there's this language barrier that's really, really horrifying. And honestly, just from personal experience, you know, I'm in Mexico right now. I speak Spanish. If I had to go to the hospital and like something was wrong and I had to like explain what was going on, it would be incredibly difficult for me to use the medical terminology in Spanish and also understand what like their shorthand for saying terms are. This isn't a feminist issue per se, but I do think that like, it's very important that we highlight the fact that like it's important that translation services are offered in hospitals and that definitely played a significant role in like what happened to the women in the magical versus Cooligan case. If, if that was the automatic procedure where all people who are non-English speakers are offered translation services and like you're required to have a translator in the room or something like that, like situations like yeah. this. No, a hundred percent. Um, If you look at like just the population of LA, the most Mexicans outside of Mexico are in LA. And so it's like, this isn't, you know, some random town where there's not a lot of people speaking Spanish, like it's Los Angeles. So you would think that would be the case. And yeah, like, you know, I think I like to think, I don't know, like I am a smart person, but you know, setting up a bank account here was really hard and yeah, yeah. giving on the phone, like, you know, having these instructions in Spanish was 
like confusing and I had them repeat things all the time. Yeah. It's impossible so, like, to follow directions online and have a phone conversation in English. You know, like, a lot of these things are already like incredibly difficult in English and then to have a language barrier is just like crazy. Crazy. Yeah. 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 So I can't even begin to imagine yeah, how these women are made to feel. And then they're not finding out immediately, you know, they give birth and some of them for finding out that their tubes are tied when they went to go pick up their birth control at the same hospital. And they were like, you don't need it anymore. So like, it's not just one piece of trauma that's like happening once and it's over. It's like reoccurring and comes in waves. And like, at this time, like it's normal for these women to have more than one child. And like a huge thing culturally too, was like women can now in like who are sterilized can now have sex without having children. And that affected their marriages um, with men seeing them like they can't be trusted or kind of like there's not just this guarantee like okay like if she has sex she's gonna have a child because also not using birth control at that time because right. um, they're planning to have a family um, so also that dynamic between the wife and husband and um, yeah a lot of them didn't even tell their husbands until later in life or never did um, and another really traumatizing point was some of these women didn't even know until the lawyer came to them oh, because yeah. they got the list of names from the hospital. And so like getting that news for the first hand is just like first time is incredibly traumatizing. Also just like, there's an element of distrust there where it's like, okay, the woman, yeah. didn't know, but is their husband going to believe that? Is their partner going to believe that they were truly like unaware? Exactly. Because from like anybody else's perspective, it's like, okay, so you underwent this like medical procedure and you just didn't know about it. Nobody told you like, who's going to believe that? Mm-hmm. No, hundred percent. One more point. I also like in the case of having like an emergency C- C-section, like having the physical scar there to serve like as a reminder that some racist person took away your bodily autonomy and like took away your right to have kids or ability to have kids. It's just like, I can't imagine having to like live the rest of my life like that with like the physical evidence on my body that somebody did something so horrific to me. Right. Also, like, yeah, you don't know. As, and like a lot of them, they're not necessarily knowing like, oh, this is happening to everyone else. Like this is a racist, like ideology influencing, like, oh my God, like this is me. Like I did something. And like, also there's this religious aspect. Like I'm sure a lot of it was like taken on themselves and like um, almost like they were at fault it um and I think that comes across a little bit in the documentary too mm-hmm. and also that probably doesn't go away like even after you learn that there's like a system of forced sterilization going on for the rest of your life you're probably going to keep telling yourself if I had just been like a little bit more cognizant of the situation if I had known a little bit more English if I had been a little bit aware like more aware then maybe I could have avoided this like that question of what if like what could I have done better probably won't go away yeah no, 100%. Moving on to the second question, the court, of course, sided with the doctors in this case, but would you say that Madrigal versus Quillian had positive effects for some of the women involved? Um, for instance, did the case reduce the frequency of forced sterilizations or at least create public awareness of them? Long-term, we see that uh, the state is now, you know, required to provide these documentation, the documentation in English and Spanish or, you know, whatever language um, they the patient speaks, um, along with... Um, a counselor like that's also there with you explaining like what is exactly you're signing and then being informed on like yeah informed and voluntary consent like what does that actually mean um because what happens is like what happened previously was like the doctors and nurses wanted them to get sterilization so you're getting information through a skewed 
point of view. Whereas like now you have a separate counselor who um, is providing you all the options and then allowing you to decide. I think um, in the case, there was actually this like team that was designated as like the family planning team. And, you know, they're supposed to give you options on birth control, on sterilization, if that's your choice, on all your options. But they actually like were doctors were referring to them as like the sterilization team or something along those lines. But in yeah. actually the court case, you can see the doctor accidentally referring it to that um, when it's supposed to be a family planning. But in their minds, family pan- planning means Mexican-Americans aren't going to be having kids. So um, there obviously was, you know, huge change to have that advocate for you. Um, to be there uh, a present at all times if you want them to. Um, but unfortunately, obviously these women lost the case for themselves against the doctor who was the head of the OBGYN department, Dr. Gilligan. Um, so obviously he was never charged or nothing against those doctors because um, he would kind of just refer to all the patients as like not his direct patient or he wasn't familiar with like the, that case um, always kind of like passing it off as like it happened under his supervision, but like he wasn't the doctor in charge. Um, So it was very hard to then prove that this was like a systemic wide, like order being given. Um, So unfortunately in the individual cases, it did not fare well, but I think, I think when I watched the documentary, it was like going through the case, you see them being able to tell their story and like kind of reclaiming it and like, you know, kind of what we were talking about over losing that, like, oh, this is my fault and being like, oh no, this was like a systems failure to protect my own rights. So I think, and I think sharing them, sharing their story just like really made people think more about like, what is body autonomy? Like, you know, not just abortions, but like, you know, preventing forced sterilizations in terms of like, what are women's rights? Um, are people with uteruses rights? Our next question is, what was the cultural significance of forced sterilizations for the women and why was this different for brown and black women? These women are coming with the perspective that they're going to have multiple children. Like they're want, you know, a big family and that's kind of also expected of them. Um, you know, as someone who's Mexican American, like I think, I think historically too, like it was like being a mom is such a huge thing, especially, um, in older generations, I think my mom is like one of seven, like it's very normal to have a lot of siblings. So to have like one child or like however only a couple of children before that happens and then being told like you'd no longer have the ability to like have children when that's honestly like a huge, unfortunately, like a huge like value. Like as a woman, like that is the value you bring, you bring being able to have children. Um and so that's what's honestly like very sad and traumatizing where this is something that you really want to do. This is one of your goals in life. And now it's literally was taken away from you when you were unconscious, when you were, you know, in under anesthesia in under an epidural, like um, that was a huge thing. And then again, how that changes your marriage, how that changes your dynamic with your husband and the expectation that you marry you're together to build a family. And that is no longer something that can happen. so it's truly devastating kind of building off of that too. Like a lot of this like racially motivated ideology was not only, you know, towards the women, it was towards Mexican men or men of like low income. I was doing a separate research project on migration and feminist issues. And like, there was literally, I can like send it to you guys later. 
this like U.S. foreign U.S. Senate for Foreign Relations Committee talking about the dangerous Mexican and Puerto Rican men, you know, having kids, being like super drunk and always having kids and it being part of the communist agenda in the U.S. Like it is like it's so crazy how politics will tie that into their yeah personal relationships and people's Mm -hmm. lives yeah and politicizing it in order to really at the end of the day is like we don't want poor black and brown children that's what the u.s senate on foreign relations is trying to say um but they can't say that so they have to like walk around it um so as much as this was an attack on you know mexican women it was um and Latina women in general, not just Mexican women, um, but also their partners as well and their choice to be able to have children. I wonder if this had any like repercussions for the children that like may have already been born. Like if they were aware of the fact that like, or if they like thought they were gonna have more siblings and then to also have that like taken away from them. I wonder if that's it. Just family trauma in general. Yeah. I went to an abortion rights panel yesterday And there was like one of the panelists was talking about how we don't really talk about the psychological effects of like not being able to have an abortion or like just not having, not having control over your own body, like not Mm -hmm. having reproductive rights and how like as a parent, like either being forced to have a child or like not being able to have a child, like it affects the relationship you have with your own family and with your own child. Like when you endure psychological stress and trauma, that's obviously going to impact the people around you. So yeah, I think that's a really important question. Like I'm sure that there were impacts for the children who were already born. Yeah. I believe a couple of them may be in the documentary as well. And they kind of share their perspective on, you know, the trauma that also is like seeing your mom going through something so difficult or maybe hiding it at first and then finding out, um, and like not wanting them to be shameful, obviously, because this was some doctors doing not theirs. Yeah, there's so so many hidden layers to it. Right. And just guilt knowing that like your pregnancy was or like your birth was part of yeah. too. Mm-hmm. That's huge. Moving on to the fourth question. So if the issue, we kind of already talked about this with like undocumented women and not having legal power, but if the issue of course and forced sterilization was so widespread, um, why were there only 10 women involved in the case? Yeah, so that kind of goes back to who feels comfortable about airing their trauma in front of a courtroom? And um, also, yeah, to what degree do they speak English and um, have had those conversations with their families, with their husbands, because this is, you know, public. These names are going to be put on um, everywhere. So um, definitely legal status was a huge part. Um, If you're undocumented, odds are you don't want to be running into uh, the state or federal Supreme Court anytime soon. Um, so that definitely barred women who could join as well as, you know, like being, wanting to be able to relive this trauma every time uh, is another emotional aspect to it. So these women are, you know, incredibly brave and strong for not only surviving this, but then having to go through it multiple times and then losing the case. And then continuing, this, this movie was made, what, in 2016? And like this case was fought back in the 70s and like I'm sure had some repercussions in the 80s, like the stamina to like discuss this really horrific time thing that happened to you. And then also these women when this was happening were in their 20s, 30s, like so young, like I'm 22. Like I just can't imagine going through that and then 
reliving it in my 50s and 60s um, for a documentary series. I think undocumented women were kind of already eliminated from the process as not really having papers and so not being wanting to you know involve themselves in the legal system um, in any capacity even if it's to defend their rights because I think even though their you know child they had is obviously becomes a U.S. citizen um, they still aren't so that just creates more problems and better for them at least to want to protect themselves and be outside of the legal system. And I don't think it would be surprising if that was kind of a factor in the sterilization movement where a lot of obviously like a lot of white doctors, a lot of people in the medical field know that like there are a lot of factors, including undocumentation that are working Mm -hmm. against those women. And there are so many reasons why it's highly unlikely that those women would ever try the case. So like, yeah, yeah, I'd imagine that was a big factor. Okay, so our fifth question is, how do you think Madrigal versus Quilligan and USC's lack of action fits into our campus's larger history and culture surrounding sexual assault. For example, the George Tyndall case, um, who was an ex-USC gynecologist who was accused of sexual assault by over 700 women, and frat culture and last year's sick new controversy. Yeah, I mean, all of it just seems like a theme for USC at this point where there is just a blatant disrespect in this regard for students' bodily autonomy. And honestly, students of like students of color, people of color, we see that with the Madrigal case, um, not respecting the rights of Mexican-American women. And then the George Tyndall case, you know, disregarding women's bodies in general. Um, and I believe there was another case of a, another male professor harassing, or not male professor, male doctor harassing male students as well. So this is definitely, you know, uh, affects everyone. Um, and then again, we see this continuous moment where frats will misbehave. Um, by that, I mean, commit sexual violence. Um, and then the university puts out a statement and then it dies down and then it happens again. And we're kind of like stuck in this cycle. So that behavior just kind of reinforces the idea and, you know, we saw it with the DPS email. We saw it with like the university's response on how women should act better and how should they should be more on the defensive side that really your you and your right to your body aren't a huge priority um, in the idea of like student safety and the university's goals to protect its students. How does this case connect to feminist issues today? And what do all these different issues have in common? For example, abort- abortion, hijab bans and enforcements. Um, yeah, just feminist issues today in general. Yeah, no, 100%. I think one of, unfortunately, what we're still dealing with is a huge feminist issue is the right to your own body um, and body autonomy. And we can see that, you know, in the Madrigal case, we can see that with Roe v. Wade being overturned. We can see that with France banning hijabs. We can see that in Iran with, like, forcing hijabs. Like, it, across the board, we are seeing the same thing of just, like, actually, you don't have a right to your body the general public does and the government does and we'll be deciding what is okay and what is not okay and depending on where you live and what government what country whatever it'll look different but the message is you don't have a right to your own body and it's like a constant reminder to then you don't have your own right to your own economic freedom you don't have the right to your own um how you want to like leave your your religious life like all these different things um so it kind of just like it's like reinforcing the idea that 
this this patriarchal society where we are living under men and under the control of them, whether you know that's in a relationship, in our family, in the government um, where you work. Um, so unfortunately, I feel like it just keeps reinforcing this idea of unless we have this right to our own bodies, we aren't necessarily guaranteed other important rights. That's a really great point. Also, like what you said earlier about how Roe v. Wade was happening at the same time as the Madrigal versus Quilligan case, it like it kind of clarifies that none of this is actually about like a specific issue. Or, oh, hundred percent. Like, it's all about controlling women. Yeah. Like women. <laughs> women in LA are fighting for their right to have abortions. And simultaneously, the women in the Madrigal versus Quilligan case were fighting for their right to have children. Yeah, I think what you just said was perfect. And then like on that note, you look at the US and it's like Democrat, Republican, however governments decide to split up their political parties. And the fact of the matter is, is we're all living in a patriarchy and, or not everyone, there's some societies, you know, are vibing out there, but like, for the most part, we're living under a patriarchy and that influences all of their decisions. So it doesn't matter what religion or ideology is like claiming. Yeah, like how you said, like none of these things make sense, actually. It's all just kind of reverting back to controlling women. And that's what a patriarchal, patri- cannot speak, patriarchal society does. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, of course. Yeah. Yeah, this was incredible. This like was you're incredible. incredible. It means a lot that you're here. I kind of get to see where Flo's moving right now, now that you've graduated thank you for doing so much to share your knowledge and also just like being such a kind and lovely person before we end the podcast we again just wanted to highlight the significance of this case in the context of intersectional feminism so obviously quilligan and the other involved medical professionals targeted these women not just for their gender but for other aspects of their identity namely their race and their culture so this case really illuminates how different parts of who you are and your culture inherently impact your experience of the world how these treat and perceive you and as a result how you navigate the societies around Uh, That concludes our first episode of the semester and also Lauren and my first podcast episode ever. So thank you guys so much for listening and being here. And we're also going to link a few additional resources regarding the case and some of the issues we discussed today in the description. So if you're interested, please feel free to check out some of those as well. That's it for us. (laughs) Hope to see you guys next time. And this has been Go With The Flow. Bye.